Thanks again to everyone supporting us on the podcast through Patreon. Patreon allows our listeners an opportunity to contribute to the podcast and allow us to bring you great guests and content each week. Thank you to all of our patrons, to Robert Tobias for becoming our newest patron, and a special shout out to Jonathan Lambert for being our largest donor. You too can become a patron by visiting patreon.com slash mentors, the number four M-I-L. In this week's episode, we introduce Michael Rutledge as our newest cadre of host members. You may recall Mike from episode 175, where he shared his journey from being a U.S. Navy SEAL at SEAL Team 1 to becoming a Chinook pilot in the U.S. Army Elite 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. A fellow teammate heard that episode and reached out to me, and his name is Mike Weiskup. On this episode, we join Mike together with Mike, and the two hadn't seen or caught up with one another in over 17 years. It was a good time, and now on to this week's episode. This podcast is sponsored by Uncanna, trusted natural solutions. Uncanna is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran owned and operated, the Uncanna team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncanna is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS, the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncanna.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Mentors for Military Podcast. It's good seeing you, man. Yeah, you too. It's been a long time. I know. I was just trying to give Robert like the rundown, like where we came from. I'm like, I don't remember last time I saw him. I think probably when I left SEAL Team 1, I think. Yeah, that's exactly it. Wow, it was that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, we got back from deployment in 2002. I think he was was a newlywed. I was. I was. Emily. Yeah. Yeah. Even on my plaque, my platoon plaque, it's, what would Emily say? That's right. Yeah. Always, <laughs> always quoting her. She's so much better than me. <laughs> we all have that when we're newlyweds, I think. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. Seven, 17 years or 16 and a half years? That was, uh, that was 2001. Two? That was 2001. Yeah that, that, yeah. that deployment was 2001. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So you guys never ran into each other when you were flying 160th then? No, no, so. yeah. no. Okay. Yeah. It's a horrible too. And they couldn't wait to disband us. They <laughs> <laughs> couldn't us to get back so they could disband us and make everybody go separate directions. And that's exactly what they did too. Because we, that was NSW 21, what we called it. That was Bill yeah. McRaven's, you know, big idea to restructure the force from having platoons go to Guam, Japan, to CENTCOM and and that's all the places I did. Like SEAL Team 3 only went to CENTCOM. After our deployment, team went to all three locations. And so you never were like regionally aligned anymore. So as soon as we got back, they just threw us to the fair winds. Yeah. Yeah. The good old days. 
Yeah, so forgive us for catching up over the last 17 years. No, I think it's great, man. <laughs> you know, I didn't realize that it had been that long since you guys had seen one another. When you found out that Mike Weiskup was going to be on the show, I remember you had saying something like, well, you know, yeah, actually, he was the new guy in So Team 1. And uh, so I thought that you guys had been in contact this whole time. No. I, mean, I, I stalk him. I stalk him. I know what he's been yeah. doing. Uh, same same here i mean that's how i found out about <laughs> this was i saw that he was doing a podcast i was like hey that's great i and, told him I'm like this will be legendary this will be a good one <laughs> <laughs> and now he's a member of the cadre so he's going to be a regular on here yeah that's awesome yeah. well done mike yeah the pay sucks but yeah <laughs> <laughs> the benefits are good the pay sucks yeah there you go it's just like the military right giving yep. you those flashbacks Ah, well, welcome to the show, Mike. Really appreciate you coming on, man. You know, I, I can't wait to dive into your whole story here because actually, like every good uh, host, I went out there and did a little bit of research and I stumbled across something I think I forwarded onto you the photo of. And so I want to get down that path at some point. Uh, but maybe what we'll do is just really dive into your, you know, beginnings and stuff, you know, like we did with Mike and how was it that you ended up going into the military? Did you come from a military family or is this something that was new to you at the time? Yeah, no, I, I, it was a little bit of both. You know, my dad was drafted into the army during the Korean war. Uh, he was a sergeant in the army, did that for a little bit of time. As soon as he could get out, he got out and, uh, went back to college and, when eventually joined the Centers for Disease Control and uh, did a lifetime of service, you know, 30 years in, in CDC. Atlanta? Yeah, in Atlanta. But we've moved around a little bit. He never wanted to go to Atlanta. That was like going to the Pentagon to him. Right. And so he stayed as far away from it as possible, which meant he never could promote very high, but he never had to go there. Instead, he picked real garden spots like Little Rock, Arkansas. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's a good Fantastic. One. Yeah. And in the seventies, it was a great place to grow up. Um, but we moved around a lot as a result of that. But so he had service. That was it though. Most of my time was middle America, you know, Wisconsin, Indiana, uh, a little bit in new England. My mom is from, from Maine. That's where I'm retiring to is Indiana. Yeah. Indiana's great. Yeah. Love it. Who's your state? Don't know what it means, but you know, red blooded, good Americans, patriotic, <laughs> financially in the black. <laughs> That's true. So I'm just and, curious, though, how did you do CDC uh, remotely? Uh, did you like have your own meth lab inside the kitchen, or how in the world did that work <laughs> out with all those little critters that you have to end up working on? Well, yeah, you know, so my parents met in a venereal disease clinic. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh yeah, That's, That's how awesome they met. Story. <laughs> in Boulder, Colorado, VD. My mom's a nurse. My dad's doing. Okay, know, I'm glad you clarified disease that. Disease control. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But, uh, you know, every, every state has a public health. And so then you have the federal government, CDC, that brings in resources. So large measles epidemics that transgress, you know, state lines. That's kind of what my dad did. He worked on those kind of uh, public health issues. Yeah. Not gotcha. a doctor, just a public health advisor. Okay. Um, but uh, so I'm in Indiana at the time thinking, what am I going to do next? Top Gun comes out. Oh. So I'm not the only one. I'm not the I, only one. Awesome. <laughs> I've actually heard this a hundred times. It's that just, was it for me. You really? Know, Tom Cruise and, 
you know, Iceman in the locker room with towels around the waist, that was the Navy for me. <laughs> the difference between you and I, Mike, is you were smart enough to be a Navy pilot. I was not. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I wanted to fly, and I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And Indiana, despite it being a long way from everywhere and not really kind of a center of any military, you know, that there's a lot of patriotism there. And so I was instilled with that sense of patriotism and duty. Both my p- parents are public servants. So it just never really dawned on me to do anything else like the military, liked one to fly. So how can I fly? So I, all my friends were going to college. I thought, well, that's just what you do. I didn't know that there were, there was an enlisted officer path. I just thought you just sure. went into the military. Yeah. Never really talked to my dad about it. Cause you know, I'm 17, 18 years old. What does my dad know about life? You know, I know everything. Yeah. And, uh, so I applied to the air force Academy, bombed it. I go to my congressman's interview and they, they asked, so have you applied to the other academies? I said, There's other academies. Are you kidding me? I mean, I was that clueless about the process. I was like, I just want to fly. Well, I d- clearly I didn't get in and I didn't get in. I never got into the air force Academy, but I go off to college, Division Three for a year, small school called Rose Holman out in Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, Larry Bird country, and uh, went there, joined the Air Force ROTC unit, got involved in every activity, started to realize there's a bigger world out there. There's a lot of different paths. Um, got was on the swim team, the soccer team, joined a fraternity, just did everything I could. Reapplied to the academies, got into West Point, and the Naval Academy and still wanted to fly, still wanted to be a F-14 pilot. You know, I went, you know, blue and gold. And so I, then a year later, I went off to the Naval Academy. You don't get to come into the Naval Academy as a sophomore. You have to do all four years. Oh, wow. So I was going to ask you about that. So you actually had to start out as a freshman. I mean, it makes sense, but I mean, still, I guess none of those credits that you earned before really counted there at the Academy. Now I could have, okay. but I got like C's, so I didn't do good. Okay, and so I thought I was do gonna well, read. Mike. You didn't do well. <laughs> yeah, <literally. laughs> I get it now. I totally get it. <laughs> so I thought, man, I'm just going to take all these classes all over again, and that was brilliant. Never really thought about it, but you know, I'm doing Division One varsity athletics my freshman year at the academy. It's already hard being a plebe and being just doing that, but then taking the classes all over again, they were a lot easier the second time around. So I was able to set a GPA that was pretty high yeah. and then I was, was able to sustain it. So smartest move I've ever made. Uh, it was kind of like a prep school and right. academies have prep schools. So this was like the prep school for me. Yeah. So well, you were a lot more mature at that point. So I mean, yeah. and maturity has a lot more to do with it. You know, I mean, when you get a few years under you and stuff and you start realizing you're not young and, you know, you can't be young and dumb and everything else and run through a brick wall, then you start paying attention in class. You start realizing there's more to life, those types of things. I totally get it. Yeah, no, I'm I'm still figuring out that I can't run through brick walls. <laughs> you know, I, I relearned that lesson far too often. Well, uh, I, yeah, I think we all do. Uh, Our body ends up catching up and reminding us, us of those days as you get older as well. Yeah, that's right. What was it that you ended up becoming an officer of at the end of that? Yeah, so when I when I graduated, you 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 go through a selection process and you you put your bids in for what you want to do when you graduate. And some of the communities within the Navy are more competitive than others. So the options are 
go be a ship driver, you know, surface warfare officer. That's the bread and butter of the Navy. Submarine officer, naval aviation. You get into medical corps, but you can also get into the SEAL program. And at the time, they were bringing 15 officers out of the academy into the SEAL program. So that's the program I, I eventually went into. But, you know, remember, I wanted to go there to be a pilot. Sure. But somewhere along the way, and I happened to be down at glorious Fort Benning, Georgia, um, I was down at jump school as a midshipman and they put all the Navy, you know, kids together. And so you had the midshipmen and then you had this other group, like cool guys that when the, the black hats would drop you down, they wouldn't do 10 pushups. They do 50 pushups and they were just cool to hang out with. Well, those happened to be guys that had just graduated from buds and they were going to get their, their, their jump quals. That was before we broke off and started doing our own thing. So we went through, you know, the Army Airborne School. And, I mean, they were just the coolest guys I'd ever met. And I thought, you know, if these are the kind of guys that are in the SEAL teams, that's where I want to be. Like, I wanted to be around people like that. That's all I knew. Yeah. I go back. I find out what SEALs do. Oh, that's even cooler. All right. That's what I'm going to do. So I spent the next three years dedicated to just doing everything I could to get one of those 15 spots. And then I met Mike. Well, before, and, uh, we, before we get to Mike and everything, I want to ask because, yeah. and, and maybe it's the same way at the uh, West Point, and Mike, you can answer this as well. I mean, at some point, you don't know what you're going to go into and what you're going to get as a branch. It's not until you become a senior and you're about ready to graduate before that occurs. Yeah, there's a lot of hopes and dreams crushed. Yeah, I it's bet. It's fun to watch. Branch night is pretty fun to watch. I mean, in a sadistic sort of way, but... And Mike, before we get too far down the road, since you've known me since I think I was like 25 or 26, do you, do you see the irony in the fact that I am the senior command chief warrant officer at West Point, <laughs> mentoring all these young minds and future leaders of America? You know, I'm, the, not, I'm not sure scary. anybody grasped that except for someone who knew me as an E5. <laughs> yeah, I got some stories to tell them up there. <laughs> oh, we've got to hear them now. Uh, I don't know because he's got stories about me too. He just doesn't remember because he's too old. <laughs> he was actually so not to be gratuitous. I'll kick this off because I know you're going to go back. Actually, he was a great assistant OIC in the platoon, and I went through a lot of them. And uh, everybody, his skill set is is pretty standard, but uh, a lot of it comes down to whether or not you can live with a guy for for a year or a year and a half. And uh, so, I'll. I'll blow some smoke up your dress right now. He was actually an outstanding junior officer. And uh, not only you know, was he good at all the skill set stuff, but somebody you didn't mind hanging out with. And that, that's kind of a rare combination. So I assume you didn't lose it when you got promoted to captain. I'm assuming it went, to, went with you up the way. When you're a junior officer, it's the chief's responsibility to, to teach you and mentor you. Now, unfortunately, our first chief in that platoon was a dirtbag. So I had to rely on Mike to actually teach me. And so that is true. Everything I got and everything, how I started, my perspective, what it meant to be a teammate, what it meant to like, you know, team gear first, personal gear, and then you go clean up. Like those kind of, you know, morals and kind of ethos were instilled by, you know, my LPO, which happened to be Mike Rutledge. So I carried that on. It was successful then. It's worked for me since then. And I really appreciate what you did for me. 
You know, they always say that, uh, you know, not every veteran is the same. And it's it's the same thing, I think, for everybody who serves, you know, no matter what unit you're in, whether you're in special operations, you're in the conventional military, whatever the case may be, you're going to run across good leaders and bad leaders. And so I think you just you just mentioned that right there in that, you know, instead, what you do as a leader is you try to search for somebody that. Um, you know, has your back that you can trust that you can learn from those types of things. And we all have been in a situation where, you know, we come to a new, uh, whether it's a new unit, a new office situation or something like that. We're not the smartest person. We never want to be the smartest person. And sometimes you got to humble yourself and learn from some of the, the more junior folks there. That was, that was a sign of a great leader right there by doing that great manager. Yeah. Thanks. Mike, I didn't know if you wanted to take it in in terms of uh, the time there on the SEAL teams and some of the stuff that you guys did together, because it was uh, how long did you guys serve together before you ended up splitting well, and going I'll, to different I'll directions? I'll help it out. So yeah. I'll help the listeners out. Mike, what Bud's class were you in? Uh, two, two, three. Holy cow, you cherry. <laughs> <laughs> They're in the 300s now. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, so I just remember... At that time, when uh, Mike checked on board SEAL Team 1, we actually did advanced training in-house. Uh, they hadn't split off. It wasn't a, a Group 1 thing. but uh, So he did advanced training in-house at SEAL Team 1. I think at that time it was called STT, SEAL Tactical Training. And then he checked into, was it, where were we, Echo Platoon? Yep, that's right. Yeah, as a, as assistant AOIC or assistant OIC. So we had a lieutenant who was the OIC, Tristan Rizzi, who's out there somewhere. And then uh, he was the the second officer. We only had two officers, and the rest were were enlisted and on down. I was I was the leading petty officer. Yeah. So to, just to step back before that, my first day at SEAL Team One, and we'll get to why this is <laughs> funny, uh, it, and why karma exists is I checked in as every good Naval Academy junior officer should in my whites. I looked good. I showed up at nine o'clock promptly at the quarterdeck, orders in hand, just about the same time that the entire command was coming back from a run. So you had 100 SEALs running back in right as I'm walking up to the quarterdeck. And one of those, a guy that we'll call Duke, <laughs> and you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, Still my best buddy. Yeah. And he ends up going, oh, hey, Ensign, you new to the command? I am. Well, why don't you come back here and meet the team? So brings me back. Everyone's just worked out. And I knew the deal. 20 pull-up challenge. That's what you do on the first day. So I'm in my whites. I'm ready to go. But I thought it would be after I would change into PT clothes. Oh, no. Not in my whites. So he's like, hey, you know the deal, Ensign. Mount the bar. So I go to lift up my arms. And I realized that I've got shirt stays in. Now, these are like your uber, you know, tight Effeminate. ass, you know, yeah, you know, Naval Academy things that keeps your socks up and your oh, shirt pulled down. Yeah, really I've seen tight. those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen oh, yeah. Those. oh, yeah. Yeah, I was one of those guys. <laughs> and, and I couldn't get my arms up. So I had to, in front of the entire team, I had to undo these things, pull them out. So they looked like I had garter belt on you know and i'm and i i remember looking at my co uh tom carlson and he's just shaking his head like i can't believe you did this to yourself now, now <laughs> i will add rob you have to i'm gonna set the stage real quick because he didn't quite <laughs> adequately when you're talking about some guys that you know so 
internal of the team, we had training cell, and that was all the senior SEALs at the team. And I was actually in training. I was an instructor at the time in training cell. So it was this guy, Dave Dukazow, he's talking about. And Dave Dukazow is about 5'7", 200 pounds, like as wide as he was tall. And he and I used to just tear shit up at the team. So when we saw somebody show up in white, we're like, oh, God, this is awesome. <laughs> also, to set the tone, in training cell was a guy you might know, Jocko Willink. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so if you can kind of picture, like, the zoo that was there waiting for this to occur, it's one thing when you see some guys wearing their Cracker Jacks and Dixie Cups show up. It's a whole other one. It's like getting a 30-pound catfish on the line when you see an ensign show up. So New meat, yeah. It definitely. was just always that way. Yeah. Always that way. First day, probably probably like being a ranger private, checking in the ranger battalion. So did you uh, finish the pull-ups? Were you able to finish those? I absolutely did 20 pull-ups. Okay, good deal. But I didn't get counted for them all. Oh, somebody was standing there going, one, one. Oh, yeah. oh you didn't go one. all the way up. Hey, why don't you tell us something about yourself in between the pull-ups? <laughs> and next thing you know, I'm like, all right, I'm, there's no way I'm finishing this. And so, you know... You know, five minutes after that, I'm wet and sandy in my whites, checking in for the rest of the day with no like extra bag of clothes to change into. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. But the op- the other option was we used to make the new check-in stand on top of the desk in the middle of the training cell office and sing the national anthem. Oh, yeah. You oh, know. Yeah. So this guy, Duke, fast forward. Yeah. <laughs> 15 years. I check in to command one of the uh, the, the, the teams at the time. You know, it's called Special Reconnaissance Team 1. SEAL Command, who's my executive officer, my second in charge, Dave Ducazal. Oh, my God. So you talk about turnarounds, fair play. Oh, here. man. I loved every second of that. <laughs> Did he report it in his whites? Well, no. He was already there when I got there. But okay. It was, it was a lot of bringing karma back around. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's what you were talking about as far as uh, the karma piece of it. Most oh, definitely. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, that would have been like, uh, you know, Christmas. Christmas morning, showing up and seeing that guy there. What did he do whenever he saw you? You know, we it was good. You know, Duke was a was a professional, yeah. and you know he he was a, yeah. he was a small guy. I mean, he got beat on a lot, so like he uh, he had a lot of character. Uh, but he was he was extremely detailed oriented, and I'm not. And so we played off each other very well, but we both had the SEAL Team 1 experience, which at the time they called it Stalingrad 1. It was this absolute, you know, you wore uniforms perfectly. You tucked in your brown T-shirt into your UDTs. You never wore that down to the surf mart. Otherwise, Master Chief Faculty would have your ass. And, uh, I mean, Vietnam era SEALs, like, it was the old school. I mean, it was the first team. I think... We were probably the last era within that five or six year period. We were the last guys to experience old, grouchy, very competent Vietnam era SEALs, you know, because yeah. they had all retired and aged out by that time. They're probably post us. There probably weren't any guys that got to experience that. Yeah. Right. No. And, and so he and I both had that experience. So when we came in to run this command, we had very similar, you know, this is how it should be. Yeah. Um, and so we worked very very well together and it, it was a great relationship great friendship and uh i'm glad we had that old experience even though i was a little bit apprehensive going into it um it turned out to be a real strength for us now that's awesome man and i want to fast forward because at some point and i want to get into this thing you know photo that i sent you because it was probably not too long after this i'm taking it um after your time with SEAL team one 
that you probably became an aide de camp to General uh, Martin Dempsey. Yeah, no, it was that was ten years after SEAL was Team it? One. I I got all my operational time under my belt, and then I had to, you know, I was the XO at SEAL Team Five, which is you know second in command of a, a battalion size unit, and then I had to go do my, you know, obligatory uh, staff time somewhere, and yeah. so I chose to come to DC. Now I could have gone to Sock Pack and gone to Hawaii. Could have gone to a lot of other places. Yeah, why? Why DC? <sighs> There's got to be a good story here somewhere. You know, I, I wish it was a better story than you know. I'm a glutton for punishment and a little bit of curiosity. Yeah. You know, what's that really like there? What is this thing? Because that's and, where admirals are made. That's why. Well, yeah, you know, I had all this ambition and excitement. You know, I'm a Naval Academy officer. You shoot for the stars. Oh, That's yeah. what you do. Yeah. Um, and there was probably a little bit of that. Um, I had to go do something. But, you know, I also, I knew right off the bat, because I had done two years in India getting my master's degree, uh, that if I'd gone to Sock Pack, they were going to send me to Delhi for a year. And I was absolutely not doing that. I would have gone anywhere. Yeah. To avoid that. So what I did do is I turned that around and got the India desk officer position on the joint staff J5, you know, future plans uh, program. And because of my India experience, I got a by name request to come there. Oh, the nice. Taylor couldn't prevent it. I got to go to D.C. Thought, OK, this is good. I'll learn something. It will be different. I don't know what different. But I was there for all of about two weeks and then got brought up into the chairman's office. And the time is uh, Admiral Mullen was transferring over to General Dempsey. And General Dempsey brought me on as his second aide de camp. He had an Army aide, and, uh, and then he selected me as his Navy aide. Okay. Well, he yes. tells a story about how uh, each time he would go out on speaking events or engagements and stuff that uh, – Instead of everybody crowding around him because, you know, here he is with all these stars and everything else, they'd see that shiny trident and everybody would want to run over and talk with you instead. So he had to be a little humble at times, it sounds like. Well, you know, I mean, I don't think he knew exactly what he was getting into, but I mean, people, he, people like Navy SEALs. He said you know? would look over and just kind of give a little <laughs> There's nod no other and way wink. I really say that, to tell you the truth. Yeah. No, I, mean, <laughs> I, I remember his wife one time. We got back in the car. His wife's wonderful. Deanie Dempsey great advocate for military families, remarkable woman. Um, she goes, what's up with you? Why does everyone want to talk to you? And General Dempster just leans over. He's a Navy SEAL. Like, yeah, of course he is. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have to say anything after that. that she didn't it. know what that meant. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I thought it was a great story. And he mentioned, uh, he spoke very highly of you and you've probably read it yourself and such, but at the conclusion of your time there, I think, um, or it was at his time. I don't remember exactly. It was when I left. Yeah, yeah. When you left, you gave him a compass and I want you to tell a little bit about that. If you don't mind share the experience, because, um, I thought it was very profound, um, because I talk a lot about people's true North. Yeah. The, um, I mean, the essence behind the compass and the gift, you know, and I'll, I'll describe the gift here, but I'll, I really want to explain why I did it and kind of how I think about this thing. But the gift was just, you know, a parting gift as a token of appreciation and thanks for his leadership, mentorship, and the opportunity that he provided me. Um, and so, you know, I, I discovered this, you know, 1919 Navy leadership book in the archives of some old bookshop, and it had, you know, you you can go back you can go back to all the old books and find all the relevant materials that describe what you're going through today you don't need to read new books to 
to come up with new ideas. And, uh, and in it, it had these 16 points of leadership that basically represent the compass rose. And I thought it was really profound, you know, as a nautical man, you know, kind of it all laid out there nicely and the attributes were all in keeping. So, yeah, I thought, you know, wouldn't that be nice to have on a compass? And so I kind of genned up this design, you know, and put these different attributes around the compass and then uh, found this old, you know, brass compass in a antique shop and had it engraved and uh, gave it to him as a gift more as a, hey, keep this on your desk. You know, you're the senior military officer. You're representing our entire force, your advice to the president, to world leaders, where we go, what we do. You know, you don't have a lot of people you can talk to, you know, so maybe this will be a reminder on your desk every day. You know, hey, am I am I doing the right thing? You know, is my character still, you know, unquestionable? And so I wanted that as kind of a parting gift because while being his aide, I don't know if other aides feel this way or not, but I felt it almost a, an obligation or a duty to, to kind of check in on him and, and, and make sure, you know, like he was doing okay, you know, more than just carrying the bag, more than carrying the uniform, sure. but you know, you, they don't have a lot of people that they can talk to, confide in, you know, express their opinions, be vulnerable or open, you know, to what's going on. You're there with them so much and you become so close. So I would often ask him, you know, why he felt the way he did or what he wanted to do. And I, I just felt it was my responsibility um, because I also recognized that as a 40-year military general, you know, he knew what I was trying to say. And if it wasn't pertinent, he'd forget about it or just dis disregard it. But, you know, if there was something I could do to help him, you know, every day be the best possible four-star general and represent all of us, then that was my responsibility to the rest of the force. So as a legacy, I felt giving that compass to him was a good reminder of that, uh, you know, after I, you know, left prematurely because I couldn't stand working in the Pentagon anymore. <laughs> I had to get back out to the force um, that, you know, I could leave something to myself behind. Yeah. So on the back of this thing, you have uh, charity, truth, justice, courage, patience, honor, tact, loyalty, and um, I think I said charity in the middle, it says moral compass and on the compass itself, it's pointing North. Uh, you made it so that the, uh, uh, that's the emphasis and point of direction. And so, uh, I, I thought that was a, a really cool gift. And, and actually I focused on the photo before ever reading anything. And because I had often thought about for mentors for military, creating something very similar in terms of a coin. And so when I found this thing, I thought, Oh my God, this is like, beautiful it's pretty profound in itself and obviously it means a lot to him and he speaks very highly of you and mentioned this and so i'm, I'm appreciate you sharing that story yeah no i you know i there's these simple things that you can exercise you know in the development of leaders and i find that that tool is a pretty useful one every time We'd have the E6s that made chief go through their chief's initiation. I would sit down with them and I'd make them fill out their compass rows of, you know, what is their true north, you know, and why. And everyone surprised me. You know, I thought it would be pretty consistent, you know, trustworthiness or courage, but they all had something different that meant something different to them. And I, I started to learn that, like what I thought was just everyone's true north. Everyone had a, a, many different variations of what their true north was. Um, and so I started to learn a lot more about, you know, 
the different types of people that I was commanding and what really kind of inspired them. Uh, but I find it as a, it's a great metaphor for so many things, but it's a great leadership development tool as well. Being here, Mike, I kind of appreciated the value of a good aid. And it also made me realize how much more valuable and how much more diverse an aid's job is. Like I said, it's not carrying bags and lining up flights and, and ground transportation. A, a good aid is, you know, your spouse, your brother, your cook, your, I mean, probably spends more time and more intimately familiar with, with that person's life and needs and personality than during that period than anybody else. So I, I have a lot of respect. I, I realize now what a tough job that is. The ones that are good at it are worth gold and the ones that are bad at it, it's painfully apparent within a matter of weeks after they take over and it doesn't always work. It's so much a personality thing. And I don't know the ones that I've experienced, you certainly nailed it. Mike is that, uh, you have to be service oriented. If you're not service oriented, it's not about you. It's about the principal. Yeah. And far too many guys and gals, they want to become aides because they want the loop. They want the prestige. They want the recognition. And the first thing you got to realize is, yeah, you're a servant. You're there to support them. And when you get to support the guy, the chairman who's making decisions on behalf of the entire force, that's a profound amount of responsibility as well that you have to accept, say the wrong thing. Don't prepare him correctly. He makes mistakes. Things go bad. That's entire forces, force structure, relationships, um, his, you know, the trust that he has with the American people and with the the Secretary of Defense and the President that comes into jeopardy, all because you didn't do your job right. Yeah. You know, a lot of these types of roles are actually starting to find itself within the private sector. I know that in large uh, Fortune 50 companies, they've created these types of positions for senior leaders. Um, mainly because they need that type of confidant and that kind of person that can, uh, you know, be that aide de camp that they can rely on very heavily. You didn't focus on yourself, and this was a stepping stone in your career and an opportunity. You may have gone into that thinking, "Hey, this might be a great opportunity," but it sounds like you came away learning so much more and getting so much yeah, more out of it. That's right. Yeah, and I've always kind of, I've treated every experience in my life like that. I never, despite my Naval Academy is, I never had a deliberate strategy or plan of how I was going to make rank. That wasn't what I was concerned with. I just, I wanted to go where the experiences were. You know, I wanted to go where I could learn something. And part of that was, you know, I know I joked about it, but that part of that was going to DC so I could get experience. What is this really like? I get to experiment. I'm in the military. They're going to pay everything. I'm going to go there. I'm going to try it out for a couple of years. Maybe I love it. I come back here as a civilian one day. Maybe I hate it. And no, I never want to come back here again, which is basically where I'm at, The uh, which is why I'm in Maine now and not in, in D.C. But I, 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 I saw these just as a series of just great experiences that, you know, kind of you just you do as well as you can inside them. And, you know, everything else takes care of itself. Yeah, there's, you know. there's a term or a label out there called growth mindset. And what you've just described there is just that. I mean, building yourself and you're having a growth mindset and taking in and being a sponge as much as you can of everything that's around you. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm sure Mike, you know, feels the same way. He went and did jobs that he enjoyed. You know, that's why he went flying. You know, he was always flying when on the weekend during the platoon, you know, so it made sense for him to continue a career that. But you go to do the jobs you enjoy doing with the people that you enjoy being around. 
everything else works out. You go to a place that's got great pedigree, it's got a great position title, and you hate the job, or you hate the people around it, you're going to suck at it. And your performance is going to suffer. And then your reputation will suffer. So just stick to the things that you enjoy doing, and the rest just works out. On that, yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. I, I agree with that. Uh, Mike used me as an example, but it's the same thing I tell people that, uh, I don't know, you know, if you're, if you're not enjoying what you're doing, the, it's pretty easy. You just got to go find what it is you want to do. Sitting and bitching about it's not going to get you there. Yeah. We talked and, a lot about, you know, finding someone's purpose or passion. I think we even talked about this on your episode, Mike. And I think some people struggle with that, though. Just trying to find first who they are. That's that's really hard because you got to look introspectively. Yeah. You, you definitely, you're right. You can't go anywhere until you know what makes you happy. And even more difficult is finding what makes you happy that actually results in a in a career field. Yeah. That's why sometimes I say that's your true north. I've used that, um, you know, Mike, in, in how I describe what true north is. I tell people to find who they are, identify what that true north is, and every time that they get off course, make sure they look, recalibrate, relook at the compass, identify true north, and take off, you know, on pace again. And um, I think it's so important for people to understand what that is and to slow down and take the time of life lessons and things that are around you that's going on, because each of that is building the type of character and individual that you are as you're going through life. And if you're paying attention to those things and you're going to constantly keep building upon that and making yourself even better and being able to pass that type of knowledge off to somebody else, you know, don't try to internalize it as well. But um, I also talk to people about identifying what their anchor is. I know uh, I, I was not Navy. I was Army. My father was Navy. But uh, I, I use a lot of these terms in that way. But I think in finding your anchor and making sure that you remain anchored, in other words, remain true to yourself and stay focused on who that person is, too. Um, and it may be your childhood, uh, your memories, your friends, your family, and those things that help keep you grounded uh, and help keep you real as you start trying to progress, you know, and move forward. Yeah, hey, I know. Yeah, go ahead, I'm Mike. Sorry, go ahead. I, I got a question for you, and it's a little off the script. Is how do you think your your time in the SEAL teams? Because obviously you went on and did jobs that weren't operational, you know, but you still had it in. How, as you progress in your career and a man, which is I always say perspective is a really interesting thing. We're in our forties. I don't know what you are. I'm in my late forties. You know, we look back and like, wow, I was either dumb or I wish I'd have done this right, or I was really happy I did this. But how, how do you think your experiences in the teams? You know, because you were you were the man you are before you went to buds. A lot of us forget about that, but how, how do you think that carried with you as you grew as a man in your career? Like, what did you take with it either subliminally or, or consciously? Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to answer that question correctly or not, but you know, I've been asked, especially lately, you know, about my experiences in the teams and what would I've done differently. And certainly there's a lot, large part of getting at the 20 year mark and kind of reflecting, you know, what have I done? Where do I want to go? And uh, I can, you can never really, you never really know who you would be if you had taken an alternative path. But I grew a lot in 20 years. I grew from wanting to be a Navy SEAL and being, and being in the teams to becoming a Naval officer and understanding actually what that meant. Took a long time to figure that out. Um, and it certainly took the experiences that I saw in the joint force more than what I saw, you know, in the SEAL teams themselves, because you get lost in this fishbowl, <laughs> you know, but going out to see the, the bigger, the bigger military, uh, you know, I started to become more of a naval officer and part of me regrets 
having chosen a path in which I was constantly surrounded by extraordinarily high-performing individuals that actually didn't require a great deal of leadership because they were leaders themselves. They were alphas. A lot of times I showed up, especially in the early years when I didn't know what, was I, what I was supposed to do, and I was just keeping up. You know, Eventually, I got to a place where I felt like I could lead and I could provide perspective that I could certainly keep people from making mistakes or at least going down rabbit holes that was going to waste their time or hurt their families. Um, but I look out across, you know, the Navy, you know, where's real leadership needed? Real leadership is needed in those hard locations that no one wants to do. And that's on the ship. Seals could go away tomorrow. That the Navy would still exist. The ships go away tomorrow and we lose a national security capability. Yeah. So, you know, that young seaman, who's sitting on, you know, in deck division on an amphib, that's who needs real leaders. You know, that's the, that's the person who has volunteered to join the Navy, has probably come from some kind of austere or difficult background, doesn't have a great education. That's why he's on, in deck division unrated, because he didn't have a high enough ASVAB score to get something else. You know, does the SEAL who's got you know, the book deals lining up for him and the, and the movie spots and all the chicks, you know, hanging outside of his house, much to his <laughs> wife's chagrin. Um, you know, they do need leaders and they've got plenty of them. But those, you know, some of these other aspects of the military, that's, there's really, and part of me goes, God, I, I wish I would have gone the harder route, the less sexy route. And, uh, you know, what would that have done to me? Where have I been? And would have my, would my skills, have, you know, my abilities have reached their potential uh, by helping those that needed more help than those that maybe I worked with because they were just extraordinary individuals? I know this is complicated. Well, you know, I think, like I said, we're off script a little bit, but I think, uh, I think when we were young, as I realize now in perspective, I'm like, we were not good leaders. I mean, just being a SEAL or being a Ranger or SF or whatever, that doesn't make you a good leader. Yeah. It turns out, you know, 30 years down the road, it's a cumulative process. Um, what I did find out about myself and, and I think everyone else has realized it's been a position is when you've done something really challenging, like, you know, like I said, whatever, been in the Ranger Regiment, SEAL teams, 160, whatever, what you realize at the end of your career and you get at our stage in life, you're actually a much calmer individual because you're, you reach that point where you're not reaching for anything. You know, like you, you just have kind of a clarity of thought and a, and a calmness in your demeanor that, uh, you know, especially when you retire out of the military, which you'll find pretty well, you already did, Mike, I'll find out here in a couple of months. But so I'm hoping this theory is true. You, know, you just have a, a calmness of spirit that, uh, you know, like, all right, I did that. There's there's nothing more that I really have to accomplish and I can kind of go do what I enjoy instead of having to constantly goal setting or find something else that I've got to accomplish. I think that comes through wisdom though, doesn't it, Mike? I mean, I think it's, it comes from, um, you know, and you kind of mentioned it even, you know, in terms of as you get older, you start realizing those things are not quite as important any longer. It is. And I will say it's not a soft centric thing, but I think, I think every man or woman, whatever, you know, they have a need to be challenged. And I think there's always a, a longing. If you never find that, whatever it is, I don't care if you're a baker, airline pilot, you know, truck yeah. driver, whatever, but if, if you haven't, if you haven't met a challenge and answered some of your questions, you know, I think there's always going to be an empty space as you get older. Sure. Probably too deep for this podcast, but no, no, we all live with a little bit of regret somewhere. Yeah. I, my epiphany came 
few years back when uh, when I stopped trying to be the performer and I and I started not caring who got credit. Mm. And I was yeah, like, definitely, boom, that was it. When I stopped caring who got credit and just started working on it for the for whatever reason, I was I was so much more successful is maybe the wrong term, but certainly more productive. And, uh, and I was a lot less stressed and, uh, I loved it. And my relationships with people improved. My relationship with myself improved. I I became eventually thoroughly professionally satisfied, which actually enabled me to leave when I did without any regrets. And with confidence, knowing that that same approach I can take anywhere and it's going to be fine. Well, let's kind of then move forward because it's only been six months since you've been uh, retired after about um, almost 21 years of military service. And uh, you retired as 06? No, I, I was on the 06 list. Um, so had I stayed in for two more months, I would have pinned on 06, but then I would have been obligated to three more years of okay. staff hell. <laughs> oh, I was, I was actually going to be really excited. You're a captain. Yeah, no, I, 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 much to the chagrin of all my military mentors that told me I was stupid. I've never really kind of gone along with the, the standard course. I've always charted my own way for the most part, but, um, yeah, I, the time was right. And once you put that, you know, the, uh, the, those those eagles on you know the captain rank on and and you're re, and you sign you're 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 in for another couple of years well now you got to do three years to get that pay and now right at the end of that i'd be competitive for a major command position and then so you get selected for a major command you do that so the way i looked at it was if i stay in for two more months i'll be staying in for seven more years yeah yeah like and so to me, getting out was an equation of time and the amount of time I have left on earth to achieve different goals, make differences in you know, other areas. And those seven years, as compared to what I thought was the potential, uh, you know, being a civilian and doing something different, I just, I felt like I needed to make that, that change. And so as much as it would have been nice to, to wear captain for my own ego, I didn't need that to kind of prove to who I was or that I'd accomplished anything. So, yeah. Uh, I don't want to get all deep and meaningful on you, Mike, but that's probably the best articulation I've ever heard of that concept. I think, cause I just went through that myself. Am I going to turn down CW five, which I'm eligible for and get out? But same thing. I'm like at 30, I've had enough. It was all ego driven. So Thank you for articulating that for me. It makes me feel better that I wasn't the only one going through that. Oh, I did the exact same thing for uh, E9, and I found that uh, when I started mentioning that, the same thing came up over and over again because as you start progressing, there's going to be at some point where you got to draw the line. And I think we've all reached that point at some stage. You know, uh, In your case, you're about ready to cross that line, Mike. You know, there was, there was actually an old SEAL warrant officer that I heard years ago that said, hey, you, need, you guys need to understand that, you know, it goes for anybody who's in a demanding occupation. You guys need to understand that being a team guy, it's like being a, an NFL player or a supermodel. You know, he goes, in the fact that it's got a defined shelf life, there's only a certain amount of time that you can do that. It's going to end. You know it's going to end. So don't be so in love with the organization, you know, because it doesn't love you. And at some point you have to figure out, where you're going to go and what you're going to do afterwards because it has to end. 
Yeah. And I think you know, we see a lot of guys that struggle with the transition, I think is because they're, uh, they've self-identified themselves with the organization, with the brand so much mm-hmm. that by leaving the community, by leaving that organization, it's, it's too much, you know, and, you know, I certainly have loved being a Navy SEAL and I was proud to be recognized as one and to be able to, you know, you know, basically, you know, like our ethos says, you know, brave men have fought and died for the reputation that I'm, I'm, I'm bound to protect and uphold. You know, I've lived off of the shoulders of, you know, great seals. Uh, and, and I appreciate it. I hope I've done my, my duty and not blemished the, the, the trident in any way, but I never really saw myself as only a Navy SEAL. You know, I was many things, you know, I, I did strongly believe that I was a naval officer, which allowed me to command non-SEALs, I think, effectively and without prejudice or bias, which I think was very important in a, in a commander, but also to transition out and know that I don't need to keep being a Navy SEAL on the outside or be the former Navy SEAL. Yeah. You know, to me, I, there's a little bit of me like, I want to be able to prove that I can do something else that I don't have to use the SEAL brand image for the rest of my life in order to justify my quality as a person. If I can't go into the next 20 years and be a contributing member of the community and make a difference in people's lives in some other non-SEAL way, then I'll have disappointed myself. Wow. Love it. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's the best, like I said, best articulation I've heard of that. You're, you're actually personally helping me, Mike, helping put, <laughs> helping me put some demons away as I get ready to retire. Well, I think what's amazing too, though, Mike, is what you ended up transitioning into. I mean, because it's kind of, you know, when you and I talk, it's a bit unorthodox. I mean, most people are not going into the line of work that you've chose. Uh, you don't really think about jumping into that stage. Yeah, no, um, I would have never guessed, you know, so a year ago, I'm sitting on Iraq uh, as deputy commander of Sudasota, Iraq, going through my transition process there, online taps, working with a couple different uh, VSOs, one of them, the Commit Foundation, that kind of helped me resolve, you know, what my value and passion was. Um, awesome organization, great, great teammates. And uh, what am I going to do next? And I had this offer that was just floated to me that was like, hey, if you need six months, seven month transition, this president of this liberal liberal arts college up in middle Maine has offered me to do a fellowship there to join his team, bring some of the high performing team dynamics that I know, some of my leadership skills, and basically just an outside perspective on higher education, a different way of doing business, create a fellowship, you just do this seven months transition, and then you can figure out what you're going to do next. So I had held that at, at arm's length, but it was always in my hip pocket. And uh, I went and interviewed at financial companies down in Boston. I went to some tech startups. I did a bunch of different things, and I could not find any that resonated with me. None of them that had purpose or meaning or values that I really deeply held. And all vets I mean, that's the single thing we're all looking for is a sense of purpose and meaning in what we do. And uh, so I got to the uh, I, I got back from Iraq in June, gave him a call and said, hey, is the offer still on the table? He said, sure. You, as soon as you come up here, it's here, whatever you need to do, which was just really remarkable of him. And uh, so I, I rotated up to Maine in October 
I started here on November 1st, the first day out of the Navy. I was back to work full time and, you know, at a, at a place of higher education, undergraduate students, humanities and liberal arts and, you know, all kinds of things that I had not been exposed to in the, in the teams and the conservative world that we kind of lived in. And I have loved every second of it. Surprisingly, I, I knew I wanted to do public service. I, I realized a, a while back that I, my career is a professional public servant. Part of that was I was in the military. Part of it will be somewhere else, but it will be in public service, whether it's running an NGO, working in local municipal government as like a city planner or a town manager, something. That's what I wanted to do. Hmm. Um, I didn't consider that higher education and education was also in the public service spectrum. And so I came here and I, as any good, you know, military officer, do, you, you rotate so many times. You got to, hey, what's the culture of this place? How is it organized? Sure. Who does what? And I realized real quick that it's not too dissimilar to what we are familiar with. You know, I, I looked across the departments, their advancement section that does fundraising, their admin and logistics section, the facilities management, the chief financial officer. I was like, ah, this is like the, the S1, the S2, the S3, the S4, the S6. I was like, ah, these are your department heads. Got it. All right, so who are my maneuver units? Students and faculty. Got it. Those are my two companies. I got it now. And as soon as I had that kind of realization, I was like, oh, this is easy. I can work here all day long. And everything got, like, everything simplified. Everything the departments do is to support the primary force, the students and the faculty. And so everything this college is about is to make sure the students graduate to be productive citizens. And in order to do that, you have to enable the faculty to be the best that they can be. And you got to get rid of all the obstructions and all the, the things that prevent them from being as good of instructors as possible. And you got to give every student as many opportunities as possible to excel. Research opportunities, internship opportunities, a healthy lifestyle, a, a place where they can actually grow and develop and not and not fail to, you know, to catastrophically in life so that it, it follows them but like this place i thought you know this place has meaning and purpose i could get around something like this and uh i now i'm considering you know higher education as a potential career path you know that could in many ways culminate in you know, executive level opportunities as a president somewhere um or running a nonprofit one day but i really have enjoyed it um much, much to my surprise. In a small uh, school, in a small area like that, how did they embrace you coming in the door as somebody, you know, after serving 20 plus years of military service and here they are, they're already, you know, vested in this community, vested in this university or college and stuff. So was this, you know, was it one of these things of who is this person thinking they, you know, they can run this show? So I was very sensitive to that. You know, I was very aware that I, you know, I, I did not know their culture. I did not understand how they did business. And so I, I definitely took a step back and made myself as accommodable as possible. And mainly out of a sense of curiosity, you know, I knew I didn't have the answers, but maybe I could ask questions to illuminate the answer. And maybe in that process, it would push them to have to think about assumptions that they've 
held on to that might not be valid anymore. And so I knew there would be value in just learning and asking the right questions. I was very aware that the stereotypes that, you know, modern media and the, and the movies actually portray of military, especially with the PTSD and a variety of other things. Um, so I didn't want to, uh, I wanted to portray a different image of what a veteran actually is. And I wanted to make sure that these students didn't just, you know, go with this stereotype because they'd never been exposed or interacted with one. And so I was just Mike Wisecup. Nice guy, happy to get along with everyone, here to help you become as good of a person as you can. What can I do to help? Uh, and I actually was greeted with this, I don't know, graciousness and almost refreshness. Um, senior staff, who I deal with mostly, the vice presidents and the president, I become you know, this confidant and this advisor. I'm, they're struggling with management issues. I can get in there and help them with it. Uh, some I've helped with organizational development. They, I look at their line and block charts. I'm like, this is jacked up. You need to reorganize. Do it this way, this way. This is why. Just to help them. Um, but it's always to support them, to make them as good as possible. And as a result, I'm sought out frequently by students and faculty and staff alike for, hey, do you got any advice on this? Have you ever had this problem? get with the sports teams, you easily can connect with sports teams. That's, the, that's no brainer. But how do you connect with the LGBTQ club? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. how do you get into that space, build trust, build relationships and help them through, you know, their own challenges. And, uh, and I've loved every second of that because it gets back to it's my style of leadership. It's servant leadership and I'm just trying to help them do well. Uh, so to answer your question, uh, I was embraced and welcomed uh, in a way I didn't expect, and I'm very appreciative of because it helped me in that transition. It gave me confidence. I learned how to translate what I've done into language that other people can understand, and uh, and I found that people actually valued it and welcomed it. So that that meant a lot to me. It's actually great advice for anybody who's listening to this podcast who might be looking at a transition someday. I mean, take exactly, yeah, Mike, you <laughs> take take exactly what you just said, Mike, and it applies to anything after military. I mean, it's spot on. Um, and uh, it, it's going to be appreciated by the outside. I think what I, what frustrates me the most is when I see veterans or people who are transitioning that still has that us-them mentality, meaning I, I'm military, you're civilian, you don't understand me, I don't understand you. Well, then that's that's your problem. That's something you didn't do early on enough to embrace that and, and to understand it's a point that you have as a weakness and that you've got to get beyond that and start realizing you have more in common than you than. Uh, then you have difference. And and well, that's what you did. You know, the part you left out, Mike, is that you've always had a very welcoming, disarming personality. You didn't just develop that through age. All you got was confidence as you as you progress through your career. So you, you're obviously the ideal guy to be mentoring young hearts and minds. You know, now yeah. that being said, I think once we get out of this this long in the military, you know, we still line up the salt and pepper shakers and set our socks and shoes and stuff out in the morning or the uh, the night before. But yeah, yeah. It, it takes a special special hand and a special realization of your talents to to be working with students. No, I, I, I and it, it's the scope and the influence is amazing. You know, there's two thousand students here. If the opportunity to be able to influence them or help them or develop them, and they all go on to be great citizens, great 
you know, leaders in their own right and do amazing things, then that means that, you know, my impact was greater than just, you know, myself. And, uh, and that's important. I think to a lot of people, you want to feel that, you know, what you do has a bigger impact than just, you know, to yourself. But to your point though, about, you know, that awareness and ability to transition and, 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 you know, be able to kind of move beyond the identity of the uniform and be a part of, you know, society and contribute. I found that I prepared for that. I was deliberate about it. I sought out mentorship. I, I talked to guys on the outside, found out what they went through, learned from it, connected with different veteran service organizations that helped me through that. And I didn't do anything for my wife because why would she need that? Right. Yeah, that's a struggle. Yeah. I mean, I was in the teams. Yep. I went through all this stuff. She's fine. She's been living as a civilian this whole time, right? Yeah. We never lived on post or on base. We always lived out in town. Emily had a job. She did things. Yeah. So why would she need to transition? Holy cow, was I wrong. Yeah. Totally wrong. You know, my wife and I met when I was in SEAL training. We've been married for 18 years now. Done every platoon together, every PCS. She's gone through the whole thing. She's developed her own friends. She became as much of a team guy inside the community as I was. That's where her friends were. That's where her support was. Everything. And now we move to a place in Maine where people that we meet are exasperated by their husband might be gone overnight on a work trip and they don't know what to do. Um, and Emily can't relate to that. And so I have found that she's having a more difficult time transitioning and relating to new people than I am. Uh, and I just took it. I just didn't even consider what she needed to help with. Yeah. Um, and I, I really am disappointed by that. So if anyone's listening, it's not just about you transitioning, help yeah. your wife transition. Even if she says, no, I got it. No, no, no. They need to go to transitioning support and understand what this is going to be and how their life's going to change as well. It's not just about your transition. No, that's great advice. Actually, it's something that if anybody yeah. <clears throat> that's listening that has position or authority within the transition assistance program, I think you could use some revamping anyway. But I mean, certainly involving the spouses uh, could go a long way in that family nucleus. There's more to it than learning how to write your resume and get your VA benefits. Absolutely. And uh, I think a lot of, uh, I can speak at least for my own wife, one of the things that she pointed out to me was, okay, is this it? Are we finally going to settle in roots? Is this going to be the last move? You know, Or is it going to be something that you think in your career aspirations you're going to want to continue doing this? And it was very important for her because so long, you know, every two, three, four years making a move, your spouse ends up getting uprooted, making new friends. Your kids go to new schools. She has to get the family core back into, into place, the routine going again so that things are status quo. And like you said, you forget about those types of things. When you walk out the door, you think it was all focused on you. Um, I, I could definitely see where that could be beneficial to understand how important it is to involve the, the spouse in the whole decision process and in the transition as well. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's funny. It's not like, I mean, I get home at seven o'clock at night, most nights I've got an hour long commute to drive home. So I wake up in the morning, Emily's still in bed, give her a kiss. I get on the road. I get home about seven o'clock in time for dinner. I'll go to bed at 10 o'clock. That's not dissimilar to what it was like when I was in the Navy. Sure. 
Yet we have this impression that when you retire, oh, all that's going to change. Right. No, 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 no. Right. You still have to work. And some guys go into jobs that keep traveling. Now, the best we might have is that we're staying in one house in one place. But a lot of us take careers that is going to keep us moving. So it's not like we're any different. It's that, it's that we're not doing six-month deployments anymore. That's mm-hmm. about the only major difference, potentially, is that you're definitely not going to be gone for a long period of time. I come home every night. I might go for a trip for two or three nights, but that's not a big deal. But uh, this idea that everything's going to change, we're going to have back to this ideal life where you're home at five o'clock, you know, playing with the kids, uh, real work, real careers, especially the ones that, you know, pay a lot of money. Um, you're yeah. going to have to, you're going to have to spend some time at work. And so it's not, everything doesn't change. And so you have this expectation that it will, and it doesn't, that's a source of friction. Yeah. And, uh, and that makes it the transition a little bit challenging as well. Yeah. Especially if the spouse believes that that's going to be the same. Now it's one thing for you to, to understand or believe that's going to take place and you're going to work more of an eight to five, nine to five, five days a week, little, little travel. You're going to be home every day. But if your spouse is believing that that's going to be the case, um, like you said, if you're, if you're going for at least, uh, the careers that are more leader, senior leadership roles and stuff like that out there. No, that's, that's not going to happen. And, and it's something I think I mentioned even on the last podcast is that I, I taught my kids that you're going to have to give up something as you begin to grow through the private sector into um, more, um, you know, leadership roles and everything. The company expects and demands more of you for the pay that they're providing you. you know, and I mean, our own personality. I yeah. mean, look at us. Yeah. You know, we're overachievers. We, we get in there and we just want to work hard. We want to earn our place on the team. That doesn't change wherever you go. It's hard to like walk out and go, you know what? I'm going to do half, half as much today. Right. Like that, after 20, 30 years, we're just you not built that, that way. No. I, I mean, I take professional pride in working hard. I love it. I enjoy it. And yet there is still something to say, and yet there's still some anxiety because I've had some, you know, I'm transitioning to the civilian world. I've actually started working in some of it. And so, and yet there's the anxiety when you leave the military that uh, I'm like, all right, I actually have to work to earn my paycheck. Even if it's a salary, you realize how much, how much you actually have to focus on working because in the military, we all know it. Anybody who says they don't do it is a liar. You know, you're getting paid twice a month and there are some days you just don't put a lot of effort into it. Well, especially yeah. if you're going to be an entrepreneur, like you're talking yeah. about, I mean, yeah. Because then yeah, you've got a, a business. So I realize right. if I don't go to work, then I don't get to pay the utilities. That's right. Or the people who may end up working for you in the future. Now right. they're counting on you to deliver the income that uh, then can sustain their families. You know, so that even puts more responsibility on you to keep the business running. Yeah, it's it's much different than what most people think. And I state that only because there's a lot of military guys that think that, well, what I'll do is I'm tired of working for somebody else to start my own business. Well, that's not the easy escape. I can tell you that right now. Oh, yeah. No way. I got a crash course in, in business ownership, and it is not, it's not the dream. It's not the rainbows and unicorns everybody thinks it is. Right. It has a lot of rewards. It's very fulfilling. But uh, there's also about 20 times the pressure and stress of just being an employee for anybody. Right. Yeah. You want to see a, you know, a small entrepreneur type of thing, go down to your hometown USA and look at some of those mom and pop shops that are in these uh, downtown uh, facilities or a restaurant or something like that. And every day that you go there to eat, you see the same family members there. They're working hard. They're there at night late when you go there for dinner. They're there at breakfast when you eat breakfast. They're there at lunch when you eat lunch and start taking that in. 
because that's the entrepreneur right there. That's the entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, really to reflect on the military, it's quite brilliant. You know, they they take so much of that away from your concern by giving you this paycheck, medical, everything's taken care of. Why? To focus you on your job so you don't have those distractions. Yet you don't see that when you're in the military. And then you step out and you're like, I got to do all this other stuff myself now. Yeah. Now you can't focus on just what you want to do. You got to focus on these other myriad tasks that the military just took care of for you because you, because you had to, you had to focus on basically learning how to use the ethical, moral use of lethal force against other people. That that's a, that's a job that takes a lot of focus and attention. Yeah. Um, and so they do all that stuff for you. I didn't realize at the time. Now I got to do all this stuff myself. Yeah. Uh, some of those things that you may have uh, overlooked even within the military because you had the opportunity to not focus on those things. Now you've got those roles you've got to start fulfilling as well. Well, and you also feel a little vulnerable. You know, I no longer have the SEAL foundation to kind of back me up. Yeah. You know, if, if I got into a car crash, you know, tomorrow, I'm kind of on my own out here. You know, maybe, you know, once the word got out, I'm, I'm sure a lot of my teammates and friends would come, you know, and provide help. But, you know, when you're in the the Navy, you knew there'd be people at the door taking care of, you know, your wife and kids. But uh, now you're kind of, you're on there out. You've got to kind of take all, take all that for yourself. Mike, yeah. we could probably go on for like another two hours here. I just want to say how much I really appreciate you coming on. I think that what we've shared here within this podcast is going to be so valuable for anybody that's looking at management leadership or looking at the transition. There's a lot of gold nuggets that are saved within this show. So I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. And of course, wish you nothing but the best up there and uh, success and stuff and whatever it is that you end up doing. If, if it's still within education or something outside of that, I hope you stay in touch. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate yeah. what you do here, and I appreciate you letting me be a part of it. Absolutely, Mike. And obviously, total pleasure to see where you came from 17 years ago. And uh, my only regret is that you didn't get to be my CEO someday. <laughs> that, that would have been amazing. But uh, you were definitely the guy to be in any position of uh, a leadership and influence at a university. I would completely send my kids to your college show. Uh, I appreciate that, Mike. I, it would have been a great honor to have you know, to been your CEO and uh, served with you again. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for being on the show, Mike. I will yeah. be in touch. Absolutely.